I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. This Spin, our weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, we continue... The Consent Convo, a public conversation campaign on consent. Throughout the month of October, The Spin explores, interrogates, reframes and reimagines consent with women and men. We talk the personal, the political, the societal and the cultural. We ask, what did we learn? What do we need to unlearn? How do we create a consent positive environment? The Consent Convo is brought to you by The Spin and Emotional Justice in partnership with Ebony.com. Check out ebony.com every Thursday. They will post each show plus a piece on the Convo contributors. Consent, unlearning, reframing, reimagining, all of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Sofia Quintero and Shani Jamila. Sofia Quintero is a screenwriter, television producer, and novelist. Sofia has published five novels. Her last was Ephraim Secret, and her new young adult novel is the critically acclaimed show Improve. Shani Jamila is an artist and managing director of the New York Urban Justice Center. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thank you. Hello. Consent. It doesn't matter to the United States. Isn't that a fair conclusion after a video is released in which a presidential candidate admits to kissing, groping and grabbing women in their private parts without consent and the revelation does not cause a withdrawal of his candidacy? Twelve women have now come forward and corroborated what he himself admits to doing. He called it locker room talk. His wife Melania called it boy talk. He said he'd been egged on. First Lady Michelle Obama talked emotionally about how the revelations impacted her. The measure of any society is how it treats its women and girls. The fact is that in this election, we have a candidate for president of the United States who over the course of his lifetime and the course of this campaign has said things about women that are so shocking so demeaning. We saw this candidate actually bragging about sexually assaulting women. And I can't believe that I'm saying that a candidate for president of the United States has bragged about sexually assaulting women. And I have to tell you that I, I can't stop thinking about this. It has shaken me to my core in a way that I couldn't have predicted. This is not something that we can ignore. It's not something we can just sweep under the rug as just another disturbing footnote in a sad election season. Because this was not just a lewd conversation. This wasn't just locker room banter. This was a powerful individual speaking freely and openly about sexually predatory behavior and actually bragging about kissing and groping women, using language so obscene that many of us were worried about our children hearing it when we turn on the TV. And to make matters worse, 
it now seems very clear that this isn't an isolated incident. It's one of countless examples of how he has treated women his whole life. And I have to tell you that I listen to all of this and I feel it so personally. And I'm sure that many of you do too, particularly the women. The shameful comments about our bodies, the disrespect of our ambitions and intellect, the belief that you can do anything you want to a woman, it is cruel, it's, it's frightening. And the truth is, it hurts. It, it hurts. Michelle Obama there speaking at a New Hampshire rally on sexual assault and on consent. What about you? What does consent mean to you and for you? How did you learn about consent? Who taught you? How did that teaching shape your relationship to your body, sex, power, men and women? What was the environment you came up in and how did it shape your notions of femininity and sex? How did family and culture and media influence that teaching for you? We often say of consent, it's about no means no. But let's talk about the yes and what that means and has meant for you. When you look back at early sexual encounters and relationships, why did you say yes? What informed that? We have a politics of fear and shame and guilt, especially for girls when it comes to sex education. It surrounds us, even as more and more of our popular culture content has more and more sex in it. So let's talk the personal, cultural and familial notions of consent and how they shape the ways we learn and love and walk through our worlds and engage with each other. Sofia Quintero. Oh, first thing I want to say is thank you for initiating this conversation because until you created this opportunity, I realized that I have never really reflected deeply on this topic at all. And in doing so, it made me a lot more mindful um, about the kinds of conversations that I want to have when I'm doing my work with young people. It's really uh, put a greater sharpness on my intentionality with the work that I do. So thank you. Because they need what I didn't have. And what I didn't have was conversations about sexuality at all, never mind one about consent. Um, looking back, I realized that most of my learning about sexuality came from reading. I was a bookworm, and I discovered and borrowed repeatedly from the library uh, our bodies, ourselves. Um, <laughs> I, read, I read everything by Judy Broom, who was a cutting-edge young adult novelist, because she dared to have characters grappling with the sexual aspects of adolescence. Um, and I'm very grateful for this, but I also know that it wasn't enough. This was a really intellectual approach to what was a very social, emotional, personal aspect of my being and that it was really insufficient in equipping me to navigate what was to come. And I came of age in the Bronx of Burning Bronx in a Caribbean household. My father's Puerto Rican, my mother's Dominican. They both came to the U.S. relatively late in their lives. Um, with respect to other immigrants and migrants. And sex never explicitly discussed. And looking back, it's very evident that the silence was very much rooted in a fear that if we discuss it, I might be inspired to explore it. And the worst thing that could happen would be for me to become pregnant before I finished at least high school and got married and in that order. So this was a time when, this was way before 
you know, teen moms on TV. This was a time when unwed teen pregnancy was still very much stigmatized and a source of shame to the families in which it happened. So I implicitly, everything was implicit, I implicitly but clearly got the message that I had to take very consistent, vigilant measures to protect myself from rape without it ever being called that. Uh, that meant carrying a quarter on me at all times so I could make an emergency telephone call. This is way before <laughs> cell phones. This is, this is when there are public phones on the corner. And if I happened to be out and I needed to call someone, I needed to have my emergency quarter. This meant never being alone behind a closed door with the opposite sex. And this meant not leaving my drink unattended or accepting a drink that I did not see poured. Um, there, was, there was never a conversation about... I was never prepared for some of the things that boys and men would do. Um, so there was never a conversation about street harassment, which started for me at a very young age. And this was not at all because I developed early. It was quite the contrary. I was a late bloomer. But at 11 years of age, I had men making new comments to me on the street. I remember at one time being about 15 and walking alone to school in the morning and having police officers in their uniform, in their NYPD car, attempting to rap to me. That's what we called it back then. And this is the 80s, so this is a certain fashion. I was the girl that wore that fashion dress. I was the one who wore the ripped dress with the cutouts at the waist and the crop top that showed my belly button and the bubblegum jeans. <laughs> and I was not sexually active at all. I wouldn't even play the backyard kissing games with the boys on my block. And, but that's how I dressed. I just had this kind of instinctual thing that this new body that I was growing into had some kind of power. And I was trying to figure out what that power was. And I got the message right away that I wasn't always in control of this power. So the fact that I wasn't the girl playing the backyard kissing games didn't stop the boys on my block one day from chasing me down an alley, cornering me, and groping me. And they were doing this to all the girls. And even though I made it clear I wasn't interested in any of them in, in that way, I wasn't exempt from that kind of activity. There were a lot of games that the boys played that were centered around groping girls. I remember in the summertime there was this thing called whirlpooling. And that's when the boys surround a girl in the water because she couldn't get away, and they would grope her. And the girls who were targeted were slush-shamed, and obviously that wasn't the word. We didn't have a word for it then. And meanwhile, their only so-called, quote-unquote, transgression was having a womanly body. And that's what made them target. And when I was targeted... I walked away from that experience with so much shame. I really thought it was my fault because I didn't keep running. It was my fault because I went down the alley instead of going down the block. It was my fault because at the time while they were chasing me, I was yelling, no, 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 but I was also laughing. And it took me a long, long time to get over that and realize that I hadn't done anything wrong. And a big part of this reflection for me was the role that pop culture played in my understanding of consent because pop culture was filling in that void created by the absence of a conversation. Not too long ago, I was rereading one of my favorite young adult novels, the one, one of the ones that I read over and over again as a kid. And there's a scene where a boy asks the main character, the girl, if he can kiss her. 
And she takes this not as a sign of respect, but she takes his hesitancy as something that makes him unworthy of respect. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. I'm not going to go further into it. But I, I also remember how uncomfortable and conflicted I felt to watch the first season of The Real World and see David Edwards rip off the comforter of Tammy Akbar, and we know her now as Tammy Roman of Basketball Wives, and watching him get thrown out of the house, being accused of rape and getting thrown out of the house, and being very conflicted and uncomfortable because these were two black characters on this show and watching this happen. So these are some of the things that were coming up for me when you asked us to think about this from a very, very personal perspective. I don't think even when I went to college and take back the night was a very big thing, I still don't remember the word consent being used. The the emphasis back then, this was late 80s, early 90s, the emphasis back then was about just say no. No means no. And yet, in the absence of a no, there was still a lot of murkiness. So this is one of the things that I'm very grateful for younger feminists having moved this conversation and and bringing more preciseness as well as nuance to this topic. Shani Jamila. So I'd like to echo a sense of gratefulness for Esther to you for inspiring this conversation. There's so much that's familiar to me. As I'm listening to Sophia talk, I remember the emergency quarters. I also carried those. (laughs) I remember, (laughs) you know, the sort of absolute fear of teenage pregnancy. It was really the worst thing that could happen to young people. In fact, I I recall a peer of mine who did get pregnant. She was one of the so-called good girls when we were in high school. She got pregnant, and they made up a reason for her, her absence from school. They said she had chronic fatigue syndrome, and they literally moved her. Her family moved her out of state so that she could give birth out of state and have her child raised by a family member so that people at home wouldn't know, although we all did. But that's the kind of length that people went to to try to protect these notions of respectability and of family and of what was appropriate at the time for teenage girls. Of course, no mention was made at the time of the father of her child, who was also a teenager and and at the school. He didn't suffer anywhere near the same repercussions. But when I reflected back on what consent means and how I was taught it and all of the questions, Esther, that you asked us to consider, I realized my very first memory of this came from my preteen years and my parents sat me down um, with one of those videos about this is what happens to your body when you enter into puberty. (laughs) And so we watched and we learned about what it means to have a cycle and the changes that your body will undergo. And I remember they told me at the end, if you have any questions now or later, feel free to ask us. We're here to help support you through this. And my only question was, can I get out of here? I was so embarrassed. <laughs> I did not <laughs> have the conversation with my parents. Are you kidding me? I, I was mortified. Uh, so, but get my, me out. Get me out of here. <laughs> like, how quickly can I um, but, but I actually called them this morning in advance of this call because I wanted to ask them, I actually don't remember the word consent coming up in that conversation. And did we ever have a conversation about consent? And collectively we realized it actually didn't come up then. They said that really there was a sense of sort of general self-affirmation that they wanted it to grow from, but we never had an explicit conversation. And I do remember the slogans. I remember no means no. I don't remember when that enters into the conversation, but I remember that it was an extremely important part of our teenagehood around the same time that just say no 
you know, Nancy Reagan's anti-drug slogan. So I remember those sort of slogans permeating our, our teenage years. Perhaps we talked about it in health class. Perhaps we had conversations with peers. I certainly was also a bookworm, I'm sure. I looked up different stories that were happening to, to young girls then and trying to apply it to my own life. But there is a general sense of vagueness, of murkiness, of when did we actually have these conversations that's surfacing for me as I reflect back on those years. It's so powerful because this is becoming a running theme, the extent to which consent as a word never came up. But there were very strong messages conveyed around the notion of shame, protection, responsibility, that was essentially the girls in every situation, the expectation that you would be suddenly harassed or hounded in some ways, in some way you had to just kind of figure it out and figure out a way to not get quote unquote caught. And so, and we've had that very kind of no means no approach to consent. And so part of what the consent convo is about is saying, how do you include a consent positive environment alongside a sex positive Environment. And so for me, that means going back and thinking about when you did say yes, what informed your yes? Why did you say yes? Sophia? You know, I didn't start dating until much later than most folks. Um, I was like in my late teens. And again, I think a lot of that had to do with the conversation that was fear driven. And I was in my first substantive relationship. And I don't think I ever explicitly said yes. I just think I made money. <laughs> you know, I felt it was the first time that I was interested in someone who was interested in me. You know, there was a lot of hit and miss with, <laughs> with who I had a crush on and who liked me. And so I entered in this relationship the first time that the connection was mutual. And at the time, I mean, this ended up not being a very, very healthy relationship, but in the beginning, I trusted him. And because I trusted him, I was very willing to be sexually expressive with him. And I think one thing that did, even before he came into the picture, I think that one thing that also helped me was I was very comfortable with my body, despite whatever I had experienced and despite, the, and I think one thing that did help me to some extent, having, if nothing else, that reliable literature, <laughs> that enabled me to, and also questioning, you know, I was raised Catholic and questioning certain things and being someone who was, even at a young age, a critical thinker and thinking for myself, I think one thing that also helped me inform my yes was having, was, was cultivating on my own comfort with my own body, knowing that my body was normal in terms of what it was doing and that the feelings that I was having were okay and that expressing it was okay. And really, it was really about more than anything trusting myself. Because I think what happened in is that the fear-driven absence of a conversation or fear-driven actual conversation, it's very paradoxical on how it has us putting all this responsibility on us to prevent assault, but at the same time, keeping us from trusting ourselves. So it has this kind of paradoxical effect. And I think I had just gotten to a point when I entered in this relationship that I trusted myself. I trusted my body and I trusted myself to know what to do or not to do with it and the choices that I was making about who I was going to 
do or not do things with. But that was a long time in coming for me. It didn't happen at a young age, and it happened much later than it tends to happen with most folks. Mm. Shani? I think that's right. And the other thing that I would add is that I think one of the things we really need to consider is the presence of an enthusiastic yes versus the absence of a no. They're not the Mm. same thing. An enthusiastic yes is unqualified, right? Like there's no mistaking when you have that present, but the absence of a no is also sometimes misconstrued as consent, I think. So for instance, to give you an example of what I mean, when we were in college, the unsolicited groping, which I think should be understood as as sexual assault, and which has come back into mainstream conversation with this revelation of the Trump tapes, that kind of groping was an expectation when we went out together to the club. Just by virtue of walking through the crowd, it was routine that multiple men would grab you or touch you or grope you as you were walking through that space. There wasn't always a no offered in those moments. Usually you just tried to move through it as quickly as possible and just get away from the hands that were coming to you. But there is a difference between that and a yes. And so what do we consider permissible? And how do we articulate it in moments where it's not necessarily an intimate scenario between one person and another person? What is the difference between an enthusiastic yes and the non-articulation of a no? That is so powerful because one of the things that we want to you know, begin to introduce and talk, talk about as we're thinking about creating language and additional language around a consent positive environment is the idea of a continuous yes. You talked about an enthusiastic yes. To add to that, we talk about a continuous yes. So in other words, you may have said yes to the date, yes to the tea, yes to the first drink, yes to the second drink. You may have said yes to the kiss. You may not be able to say no to the next drink because of the way the first drink impacted you, which means at that point, all consent has stopped. But the idea that consent is a continuum as opposed to the first yes is yes. So we talk about yes means yes, no means no. But that's not really true either. And so part of what I'm looking to engage in recognizing that this is about our emotionality is that feelings change. And Sophia, you talked about trusting your feelings. And it also means trusting them when what began as a yes turns into a no for you. And then what that means for the opposite sex, which is why I think our politics of fear becomes really important. I think all of us as girls, I know definitely, had a deep, deep, deep politics of shame at secondary school in London, what you call high school in America. And shame was the guiding principle in anything to do with sex. And if you were having sex, you were automatically all the names that we've all heard in different ways. It was very specific and it was very, very clear. And so I would say for me, consent was just something that I didn't even understand. So it wasn't a negotiation, which is actually what it should be. And I don't mean a negotiation between you and the other person, but a negotiation between you and your own feelings you and where you are in the moment in which you encounter the other person and that it becomes about emotional literacy and what it means to have the right to start at a place where you feel this or you want this or this makes sense and to get to a point where you're like, you know what, that may have been how I felt, but I don't feel that way anymore. And that a masculinity learning that teaches that there is a pleasure in permission as opposed to a rejection of your manhood, which therefore becomes a conversation about dominance. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so closing thought on this um, consent issue, 
that, you know, I talk about looking at, looking at the words, what the words consent mean, agree to, allow, accept, sanction, give permission for. And I wonder for you as women, what have you had to unlearn in order to develop a healthier relationship in terms of how you think about consent for yourselves as you became older as women? Sophia? For me, but one thing that I had to unlearn was that consent dampers the primal, pleasurable aspect of courtship and seduction and romance and sensuality. That is something I honestly still grapple with, that it's very complex and that we have to allow ourselves that complexity and that continual yes, that it's powerful to eroticize that. Because we've done the opposite. We've eroticized and romanticized aggressive pursuits, you know, pursuits without permission. And I talked about what I grew up with in young, you know, popular culture. That is still going on. I mean, the whole Twilight series, I mean, the guy's a stalker, that vampire's a stalker. And it's completely romanticized. And so that's what I had to unlearn. I had to, you know, there was a part of me for a while that really resisted. Well, do you always got to get the yes? That can't always be sexy. But you know what? I would rather err on the side of having the continual yes and giving the continual yes than walking into a murky situation where even if I'm deeply involved with someone and him crossing a boundary. So that's, if, if, if that's a sacrifice, I'm willing to make it for the, consent, the continual consent. Closing thought to you, Shani. It really probably comes down to listening to hearing and honoring your intuition so that if you're in a situation and you find yourself talking yourself into something, it's never worth it. You don't ever want to have the haunting of a lingering regret, right? So to only engage in intimate situations where both you and him are both fully, enthusiastically, absolutely present, but never, ever talk yourself into something, or try to justify or compromise in a moment. If that ever comes up, it's always better just to let it go and just only be where you fully want to be. I'm Sophia Quintero. You're listening to the Consent Combo. Consent is swag. Consent is smart. Smart is sexy. I'm Shani Jamila. You're listening to the Consent Combo. Consent is swag. Consent is smart. And smart is sexy. I can't believe I love the things they say about me.
was the Consent Convo, a public conversation campaign on consent in partnership with Ebony.com. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Sofia Quintero and Shani Jumila. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, in Ghana on Star FM 103.5, and in Lagos, Nigeria on WFM 91.7. We are online. Subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes. to discussion on the spin black women and consenting to grieve in order to grow every 28 hours an unarmed black person is shot by the police that's what a 2013 report by the malcolm x grassroots movement revealed that word person then turned into man and has stayed this week fbi director james comey claimed the notion of an epidemic of black people being killed by police might be a fallacy. He says the lack of national statistics and the presence of viral videos on social media might be giving an impression that is just not true. He said this as the FBI announced a 2017 pilot program in which police will start collecting data on officer-involved shootings. His comments come as Al Jazeera released Fault Lines, The Lives of Black Women, in which journalist Femi Oke looks at the killing of two black women by police officers, Rakia Boyd and Betty Jones. One was a young woman. One was a mama and a grandmama. Both were unarmed. Here's the trailer. People don't care about black women. They just don't. We're in the way. Killed by police while unarmed. Their stories went unnoticed. The Lives of Black Women, a Fault Lines investigation on Al Jazeera. 
In the documentary, journalist Okay breaks down the statistics of black women killed by the police. And Rokia's brother, Martinez Sutton, laments how little black women's lives are the focus of protests. In the US, black women are being killed by police at a rate of one a month. One in four are unarmed. Their stories have often gone untold. They don't talk about women that much when they get killed by the police. They barely talk about women. Why is that? It's crazy because you see that even in death. Women play the second role. The documentary features women reiterating that point and sharing all the ways their lives, their deaths, can be ignored. I believe that we will win! I believe that we will win! understand that black women, black trans, cis, and black femmes are killed at a state at a rate that nobody realizes. And that even though Black Lives Matter was created by three black queer women, that our names are not consistently uplifted. People don't care about black women. They just don't. We're in the way in the case of Rakia Boyd. We're too, we're angry black women in the, uh, we're just too angry and too black and too womanly in the case of Sandra Bland. Like, we're either too X or we're, we're invisible. At best, we're taken for granted. At worst, we're abused, right? Um, and, and we see the manifestation of that on the mainstream in the erasure of our deaths, of our suffering, and of our, our resistance. Rakia Boyd was a 22-year-old young black woman. She was shot and killed by an off-duty cop, Dante Servin, as she walked down the street with friends on a warm March evening in Chicago in 2012. Servin would stand trial on involuntary manslaughter charges. He was acquitted. Servin said he believed he was in danger of his life and the killing was justified. Rakia's brother, Martinez Sutton, said no, it was not. <laughs> How could this be justified? <laughs> you took my sister away from me. <laughs> Rakia Boyd, 22, black, unarmed, shot by police, gone. Betty Jones was 55. She was in her home when police, looking for her upstairs neighbor, shot and killed her. That was December 2015. She was nicknamed Betty Boo by her family. Ms. Jones was a mama to five and a grandmama to nine. The police had been called about her young neighbor and their family asked Betty Jones to be on the lookout for police and alert them when they arrived. Instead, the police gunned Ms. Jones down. In the documentary, the family lawyer painstakingly takes you through crime scene photos, shows us where the shells lay and says the images reveal that the police were reckless, fired indiscriminately and killed Betty Jones. It was described as an accidental killing. No charges were ever brought against the police. Initiatives like Say Her Name have worked to highlight that black women are killed by police and that must be part of an organizing principle. And yet, I think about black women consenting to grieving, that society and community consents to our grief the same way they consent to black women's support, organizing, protesting and love. What do we do when those feelings are overwhelming? Do we give enough room to black women to grieve so we can all grow? 
Is there space to feel loss of black women we do not know, for whom we do not organize, and about whom we so rarely protest? These are multiple griefs for those who are lost, for the ways their loss stays unseen and unheard by larger society, and for knowing that our loss never seems to be felt as powerfully as the loss of black men. Let's talk consenting to grieve, to fully feel, in order to grow. Shani Jamila. Well, of course, I support the official gathering of more data about this crisis. It's crucial. I absolutely also think that it's a fallacy to say that this is because of an exaggerated threat. You know, it calls to mind that old saying, who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes? Right? Like, we know that we're here. We're in a movement because, a nationwide movement, indeed an international movement, because there is a very real crisis, a very real collective cultural belief that black lives do not matter. And there's a reason why we're all coming together. There's a reason why we find ourselves in this movement moment. I've been doing a lot of work on this issue through a program that I organized called Open Season, through an installation I did at Governor's Island about women and girls and the culture of confinement. I mean, most recently, as a member of the Black Women Artists for Black Lives Matter group that did something at the New Museum, we're having these kinds of creative conversations about what does it mean to not have, as they cited in the Fault Line, Al Jazeera documentary, a real conversation about what's happening with Black women being killed by police at the rate of one a month with one four being unarmed. A real conversation about names like Tanisha Anderson and Miriam Carey and Michelle Crusoe and Chantel Davis and Pearlie Golden, of course, Rakia Boyd, numerous, numerous, numerous women and men who are being killed. But I think that the important part is really to broaden the conversation beyond just the deaths, but to talk about what it means to be arrested disproportionately what it means to be assaulted. I think about the young girl in McKinley, Texas, thrown to the ground by her hair in the midst of the pool party. Just two weeks later in Fairfield, Ohio, a 12-year-old girl had her jaw broken and another group of black children was assaulted in a pool. So these things are happening with such frequency that it's almost possible to become numb to it, to become jaded by it, to feel like we're being rendered helpless. But the important thing to do is to continue to do conversations, to insist upon the validity of our own knowledge and experiential backing, and to be able to say, this is important, this does matter, and we do deserve to be able to not only grieve, but to grow into a different kind of reality where we see each other as all fully human and worthy of the rights and respect that that deserves. Sofia Quintero. I really appreciate it, Shani, bringing up the need to broaden the conversation. Because I think in addition to pushing back against state violence through law enforcement institutions, we also have to recognize that state violence occurs in a lot of other public institutions and that it may help make more visible and complicate this conversation around black women being the targets of state violence if we also look at the violence that happens in public schools and at health clinics and public hospitals and social welfare agencies. And so as Shani was speaking, I was also remembering the young woman who who was in school. And because Mm -hmm. over a cell phone, had a cop called in and got slammed to the ground. And so I think it's very important that we expand and, and, and add the layers of what state violence looks like because it's not only 
law enforcement. As far as collecting this data, I'm cynical about trusting it because it depends on who's collecting it. <laughs> so I welcome the new figures, but I'm going to be skeptical. You could give me the receipts, I'm going to scrutinize them. <laughs> and I've been thinking a lot about you, Esther, and your emotional justice initiatives because lately I have actually been participating in a training to facilitate emotional emancipation circles. And mm. this is something that was created by the Association of Black Psychologists, and they're making an effort to train more people to lead these circles because they are recognizing the importance of doing healing work around the continual stress that is racism and people coming together and needing to talk about this from a very personal place. I'm always kind of surprised when I'm on social media and something like the birth of a nation flopping at the box office occurs and how that eventually leads to a lot of posts where I see a lot of black men really coming down on black women, not only in this political sense about supporting this movie or not supporting this movie, but really speaking to some of their own pain with very personal relationships to black women. And it's just got me really thinking that we know that this is supposed to be an iterative conversation, that the person is political and one informs the other, but we tend to go from the political first to the personal. And I'm starting really to wonder and think about how much maybe we need to spend more time beginning in the personal and bringing it to the political. That maybe what would move some of our movements much further forward is if we really start in trying to detangle some of our very personal, internal challenges with each other within the community around gender. And that by starting there and then linking to the political, we could get some traction because right now having the conversation up here, so to speak, about patriarchy and having all the social justice language, and I don't feel it's trickling down at all. All it's doing is kind of, by and of itself, is just creating more resistance. And so maybe we need to get more personal first and reconnect with our own humanity and with each other's humanity and create these spaces where we can be really vulnerable with each other and our very, very personal relationships and experience to each other, and then linking that to the larger political questions. Because just having the political education, being able to do systems analysis and understanding structural forces and having the right vocabulary, I don't feel has moved us forward. Maybe we need to be go personal first. What you're saying is so um, powerful to me, Sophia, because for me doing this work around emotional justice and emotionality, part of what I believe is that we were always going to arrive at this point, right? That every iteration of a black liberation project was going to have us arrive at the point where we would have to deal with the emotionality that had to be neglected as we pursued liberation, freedom, civil rights, humanity, education, citizenship, all of these pursuits and the legacy of the injustice and the brutality had to take a toll. And so that emotionality and emotional justice becomes an integral part of 
this iteration of a liberation project and we've arrived at the moment where it's time to roll up our sleeves and engage in that work in addition to the language that has been created and cultivated because it is never going to be about the negation or throwing away of theory, but it's to recognize that the theory can never replace the emotional. You cannot do theoretical triage on emotional issues and expect there to be either resolution or healing. And I think part of what social media allows us to recognize, because we're in more intimate contact with one another, is the manifestation of all the different ways that we're wounded. So the idea of making black women responsible for the failure of a film speaks to a much deeper issue about the ways in which black women are held responsible for anything to do with black men, particularly in fact, specifically if it's negative. So where there is success, that goes to black men accredited for the creation of their own success. But anything that engages what we call the negative or failure, somehow black women are responsible. And I think part of that goes to a teaching that has made black women responsible for the emotionality of black men. I think that responsibility is taught to black girls and is then taken on in all kinds of ways in our movements, through our histories. And part of what this moment requires is an unlearning in order for there to be any kind of healing. So I don't think it's a replacement of something. I think it's the next iteration of a liberation project in the same way that the extraordinary Patrice Khan Colors, Opal Tometi and Alicia Garza created this leaderful movement where they learned lessons of previous movements and the danger of that charismatic, heteronormative individual guy running something and created something that was more collective and therefore more powerful. We are now in this iteration of a liberation project that requires us paying attention to the emotion, the emotionality that we have had to create in response to the legacy of untreated trauma that is our history. So that maybe what we're saying is now it's time. Now it's time. Now it's time. Mm. Closing thoughts to you both as we close out. First of all, you, Sophia. I absolutely agree that this is how we take the work to another level. And it's very interesting because this is always what the feminist, womanist project has been about. It has always been about making the political personal and the personal political. So it's very interesting to be circling back to this where this is what we as black women have to offer. And we are going to be able to move further when the things that we uniquely offer can be embraced and considered and given its full due. Closing thought to you, Shani. Esther, when you closed your powerful statement by saying, now it's time, I was reflecting back to the performance that we did as part of Black Women Artists for Black Lives Matter that was organized by Simone Lee and her work as an artist in residence at the New Museum. And we had a script that Nina Angela Mercer helped pull together of the words of either people who've been women and girls who've either been killed by the police or the family members who were left to tell the story. And I just think back to this quote that we had from Samaria Rice, Tamir Rice's mother, where she said, speak my language, not a little bit of talk, police brutality, police accountability, 
it's time, y'all. And we had this, it's time. It was a resonance throughout the entire piece. It was a refrain. It's the main thing that I think sticks in the minds of people who saw that performance. It's time. It's time. Too often as black girls and women are assaulted and harmed and killed, we don't grieve or have enough spaces and ways to channel how we hurt. So maybe we try to medicate ourselves. I tried to drink it away. I tried to put one in the air. I tried to dance it away. I tried to change it with my hair. Credit card below. Thought a new dress would make it better. I tried to work it away, but that just made me even sadder. I tried to keep myself busy. I ran around in circles, think I made myself dizzy. I slept it away. I sexed it away, I read it away, 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 away,
Often, as black girls and women are harmed or killed, too many stay quiet. You keep quiet while people are dying. You keep quiet while children are crying. I'm sick and tired of your behavior. One day you're gonna meet your maker. You keep quiet while people are dying. You keep quiet while children are crying. I'm sick and tired of your behavior. One day you're gonna meet your maker. How do you sleep at night? How can you eat your dinner? How do you kiss your wife or even pray to Latin Isha, knowing that your little dinner with Israel's foreign minister gave the green light for them to send in their militia on a mission to terrorize Gaza, land defensive airstrikes even from the harbor. But what's harder for me to comprehend is how you shut the borders as bombs dropped on them, obeying Israeli orders with your people trapped in a pen. The situation is broader than bombs dropped on them. Our time alongside inexcusable war crimes, but they don't get chastised. Is that right? 
That's your hour. Thank you to Sofia Quintero and Shani Jamila. Thanks, ladies. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Yeah. I want to hear myself. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This is The Consent Convo, a global, public, loving, unlearning, and reframing conversation campaign on consent in partnership with Ebony.com. Subscribe to The Spin on iTunes. It's under The Spin One. And check out Ebony.com. The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Properly people owe me your policy. Intellectual property stealing stolen commodities. So it's controlling robbery. So lack of commodity. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.